welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and today we welcome back to the show Dr. Stephen Porges, a professor of psychiatry with a background in neuroscience and the evolutionary biology of the nervous system. He's also the originator of the polyvagal theory. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Steve, welcome to the show. Um, last week, Dr. Porges was on the show, and I'll reintroduce him just for a second. Um, he's a uh, psychologist who introduced the polyvagal theory in the mid-1990s. He spent over 40 years researching the link between the um, mind and the physiological functions of the body, specifically the autonomic nervous system. Um, we discussed that there really is just one nervous system approach. We won't review that again today either. But what we really want to focus on in this process, he explained in the last podcast how humans and mammals develop by what's called co-regulation in facial expressions, et cetera. And it's the autonomic nervous system that helps regulate the defensiveness so allows us to interact in a meaningful way. So, um, Steve, welcome back to the show and appreciate you spending the time. Thank you, David. Enjoyable last time. It's going to be enjoyable this time. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really interested in this part of the program because we just hit the tip of the iceberg about we look in terms of social interaction as normal and we just all do it. But we don't really understand the implications of the, on the physiology of the body when we don't interact with each other. And could you define the term just briefly in a minute, just explain how the parasympathetic nervous system downregulates things and what it means to co-regulate? Okay, let's uh, move it back even further. And let's say that uh, our science has fo- and our society has focused on threat and not on safety. Okay. Because we think that they're basically, it's the same word from the different side, but it's our body doesn't think so. Okay. So, uh, we understand a threat triggers uh, defensiveness and triggers it in the body. And we assume that if we take away threat, we'll be safe and our body will recover and everything will be fine. But that's not enough for our body. Our body is very sophisticated through its evolutionary history. It wants cues of safety. And physiology and neurophysiologists have not really spent that much time Uh, identifying and looking for the cues of safety that enable us to turn on the health and restorative parts of our nervous system to support who we are. So that being said, let's now talk about the physiology of that. So uh, we're very well as a society, we have uh, terms like fight, flight, and sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline, Uh, are very much, and cortisol now, these are all in a sense as the term like stress hormones, but they all have different functions. They're not merely there for stress, they're there for movement. And so we have, in a sense, misunderstood what our body, how it regulates and what it, in a sense, who we are. So if you think about the difference between playing and aggression, then you start to basically I deconstruct what's going on. Playing is utilizing the same mobilization uh, systems, the same fight flight systems, but play has something else going on with it and for it. It requires social communication between the people playing, 
cues of safety, often vocalizations and facial expressions. If you watch dogs and cats playing, you realize that they are not fighting. They are using facial interactions as cues and sometimes vocalizations to ensure that their movements are not misinterpreted. So we as a society don't understand how important it is for our body to get cues of others of safety. And that enables us to co-regulate. And what that means is we can turn off our defenses. Psycholog okay. Psychologically, it means we can trust another and we don't have to maintain this hypervigilance of protectiveness. The other important point is that we can start seeing how this importance of cues of safety is in people who have histories of trauma. So when they have histories of trauma, their bodies are now highly tuned to detect predator and danger, even when there is no danger. So right. we see the biasing of these systems. And David, in the world that you were in, in terms of pain and back pain, these people often have lots of pain because pain is also a trigger of threat to our nervous system. So pain functionally is a trigger initially. And then as the body maintains these chronic states, it becomes is it's wired in and now you have chronic pain. Right. Well, I know the brain imaging studies show that since you take back pain, for instance, which starts in the nociceptive system or centers, which is basically the interpretation of pain. But if it stays chronic, if it, in other words, the pain persists, it switches to the emotional centers in about six mm. to 12 months. It's a completely yeah. different driver, but the same pain. And so it's all, you're right, it is absolutely all connected neurologically in, in, in one system. Of course, your body's responding as a unit. So in this day and age right now, we don't co-regulate very well because we're on our, on our um, you know, emails and um, even um, Facebook is not really, it's more words. You know, you're not seeing facial expressions or voice or anything like that. And even the situation here where we're on the video, why we can see each other's facial expressions and tone of voice, but it's still not the same as being in person. And so Dr. Stuart Brown wrote a book called Play, which points out this how mammals and humans develop. And this is actually a really important point for me today. I just learned about aggression and play being the same sympathetic drive. I, I didn't understand that until this second. And then your, your point is that the parasympathetic nervous system calms us down enough so we can interact. So now we society that is not interacting like they used to face-to-face -to -face in communities and villages. And then now we have the isolation from the epidemic. So could you discuss how this social isolation affects our physiology and our nervous system? Yeah, well, social isolation and its, its complement or social support has been studied by many social psychologists. And we were talking earlier about John Cassiopo's work on loneliness. And John was a, a psychophysiologist, a friend at the University of Chicago, who uh, uh, passed a couple of years ago. But he was really working very hard to get us to think about separation, isolation, and loneliness. Polyvagal theory, which is my perspective, basically says that isolation is the worst things for mammals because part of our nervous system evolved to co-regulate with another. And so we start now having to focus. What is it? Focus on what are the features 
that we need in others. And within the world that we live in, we hear words like witnessing, we hear a lot words like being present with others. And all these are really saying is that I know you're there. I can see that you're listening to me. I can see that you hear what I'm saying. And I can see that you have a compassionate element that enables you to respect my feelings. So that when I talk about whatever distress I'm in, you're not in pain, but you're still listening to me. So it's not like you're mirroring or empathetically sharing my pain. I don't want you to do that. I want you to hear me. Right. So, so now let's move into the world that we're in. And this is the pandemic world, which just is an exaggeration of the world we were in before right. the pandemic came. So right. it meant that everyone was socially communicating and tethered to their smartphone. Uh, people didn't have time, even if they're out to lunch, they're with their, their phone, even though they're with people, they're not looking at them. They're not uh, forming this neurally contingent reciprocal interaction. So we, we have forgotten. We can even go back to the school systems where the school systems have forgotten that uh, recess and play were neural exercises for co-regulation, which was our responsibility as a human being and our society. Right. They, they basically started to think through their own educational models within colleges of education that it was all a cognitive exercise. Right. Then you start to find out that many children in the educational system couldn't regulate their physiology in the classroom setting. They needed to move, they needed to, uh, uh, they couldn't sit still. But if you really, if you looked at their bodily state from a polyvagal perspective, their bodies were in states of threat. And they were hyper. I'm sorry, me, 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 me and my, when they were sitting in the classroom. Right, right. So, not moving. Yeah, so, right. So if they're in the classroom, their bodies in states of threat wants to know what's going on behind them. Right, okay. So the adaptive way of treating children like that is to put, seat, put them in seats against the wall. Okay. So their bodies don't have that reflex to look behind them. But that's not, that's not what the educational system did. It said it was an intentional behavior. You're sitting in the front row where I can keep an eye on you. Right. So now that nervous system was even more destabilized. Okay. So the, the issue was we weren't respecting the nervous system and the body's reflexive behaviors. We were basically weighing all responsibility to the intentionality of controlling it. So if you had a behavioral regu regulation problem, it was assumed that you could control that through rewards and punishment, behavior modification. Interesting. But it never worked. It didn't work well. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I was in seventh grade onward, I mean, even before that, especially, but I mean, the only thing I could think about when was recess and lunch, <laughs> I mean, honestly. And then I also, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm, my pathway is the best one, but, you know, I essentially had no homework in middle school or high school, essentially none, maybe one or two hours a day at the very most sometimes none in a week. And I, we, I had a great time. We'd had recess, a lot of it, mm. and uh, very active in sports. So I did okay. I, I did fine. And so I agree with you, this business of trying to just use knowledge to help us, quote, become com competent. Like you point out, mammals sort of learn how to navigate life by play with each other when they're very, very young. And that mm. continues through adulthood. And we've sort of taken that away, to put it mildly. So then the survey from Cigna shows that over 
that 53% of Americans in large cities, small cities, every county in the country are socially isolated. Mm. Now it's magnified dramatically with the, um, you know, with the epidemic. What do we do? Well, let's, let's separate things. Before the epidemic, the numbers were really horrible that if you were older and you live by yourself, you're something like four times more likely to die of, of a heart attack or a stroke if you're above a certain, basically it was a high, it was a risk factor. Right. But it never even discussed the quality of the social support. It said social support as if it were a medicine. Right. But the social support, if we deconstruct it, has a lot to do with the reciprocity of the interaction. That reciprocity is a neural exercise of the facial muscles and of that vagus. So the social interaction, that neural exercise is a neural exercise of your vagal control of your visceral organs. So we have- I'm sorry, could you repeat that for a second? Our social interactions, those reciprocal synchronous interactions are neural exercises of the vagal regulation of our visceral organs. So if we take away that uh, exercise, what are the outcomes? Those visceral organs, those end organs start becoming more, you, more the probability of a bad outcome, meaning a heart attack or a, any form of major medical uh, uh, disruption becomes much more probable. Right. They say, that, they say that the effects of social isolation in this Cygnus study were really the equivalent of smoke, smoking about 15 cigarettes a day. Yeah, but, but see, that again is biasing it on the negative. Okay. So what we have to, so it's the isolation. But where's the deconstruction of the positive? What are the qualities of good social support? And we really haven't focused on what they are. Those are these neural exercises. In okay. fact, we, when we focus on social support, we talk about burnout. Right. And burnout is when social support is no longer reciprocal or really working. Okay. So we kind of mess up because when we have good uh, reciprocal interaction, there, burnout doesn't occur because it's a bi-directional co-regulation. So that makes trauma even more disturbing because a lot of times you raise in a family situation and those unpleasant interactions carry through a lifetime where, yeah. you know, kids and children will fight their entire life. Spouses won't get along with each other. So you have a lot of negative social interactions that occur also, especially with the history of trauma. So I'm assuming that these unpleasant interactions also have a pretty intense effect on the autonomic nervous well, system. We're, we're, we wanted to take a few moments and say that positive reciprocals, uh, social support has positive impacts on our autonomic, helps us digest. It's right. just like a mother and a baby, and which is the prototype or archetype of what social support is about. Safe containing, ability to give up your vigilance, allowing your body to do its job, and also co-regulation through bodies being in contact with each other. That's right. the positive side. Right. When we flip to the other side, it's very clear what happens when you take away that protection, you take away the co-regulation of the interaction, you're taking away the neural exercises of your visceral organs, then there's great vulnerability, there's a lower threshold to be reactive, to be defensive, and to have biases in which you see the world with a very negative lens. Right. And so now let's flip it into the pandemic for a moment. Well, so let me, let me stop yeah. there just for a second. If I could. Okay, so that was my background. Very yeah. abusive, the whole thing, not much 
none of that. Anything you talked about that helps me co-regulate just didn't exist. So a lot of people are like that. In fact, only a third of Americans have A scores of zero. So what I'm asking first for going to that is a person comes from a trauma background, they're hypervigilant, things are going on. What are some of the strategies to begin to develop that part of your nervous system? Well, the part is, so here you're actually asking, it's a conundrum. You ask right. the, because when a person has a severe trauma history, they themselves can't do it. Right. So if you say, what can you do to do that? You're giving them a responsibility that should never be theirs because right. their body is in such a state as to make sure that they are alive. They need, as we would use the term, professional help, but they need professional help with a trauma-informed, basically body-informed therapist that understands that their body is in the state of threat and right. then enables them to experience for short intervals initially physiological states of calmness. Uh, and that's not, it's not, not, and that's not really a psychological issue. It's really just a total body physiological response mm. to threat. And yeah. so you're going to think, well, you have trauma history, psychological, it's in my head. I can solve it by talking about it. It's a whole process of learning to feel safe. Well, there are two things. Let's, let's separate. You, you can't tell yourself to do it. You have to, in a sense, Correct. experience it. You right. can tell yourself to do some things, like you can do some breathing exercises, which are powerful triggers that shift physiological state, and you can investigate those feelings of those bodies, and you can right. get into a dialogue about, whoa, when I take a deep breath and exhale slowly, my body feels calm, but I'm getting another feeling, and that feeling is anxiety. Right. Why am I feeling anxiety when my body is getting calm? And then you start understanding for the person on that journey is that calmness of the body is giving up defenses and that that body's not ready to give away those defenses. Right. I mean, this is really key because a lot of us have, a lot of people in chronic pain have a really tough trauma history. It's pretty horrible, as you well know. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find that sweet spot where we can at least start the process to get people feeling safe is, is, yeah. is challenging. And you're right, it's a concerted effort to take some effort now. So then it's hard to co-regulate with people when your baseline is the, of being on the defense almost all the time. And of course, now we're wearing masks, et cetera, which makes it even worse. So the point thing we talked about before is that a lot of the behavior that happens right now, <laughs> say this tongue in cheek, is not necessarily their fault. Yeah. Um, the issue with when you talk to a person with trauma history, the concept of blame and shame and fault is everything. Right. Because uh, a part of it is the natural reaction to that vulnerability. The other one is our societal expectation. Our societal expectation is that everyone's behavior is their responsibility. Okay. So, so if you're abused and you don't fight or flee, there's something wrong with you. Right. If you're abused uh, and you have a good job and you make a good living and you have kids and you have a family, you have everything. So what the hell are you, why, why are you feeling so bad? You, everything's good for you. So in the world that I kind of uh, have one foot in this world of trauma, what you find out is this big question is why are so many successful people in therapy for their trauma histories? And the answer is real simple. They're not successful at being a human being. 
Right. And this goes back to our biology, and that is our biology says we are successful when we co-regulate with another, when we're safe in the arms of another person, when our bodies conform, when we trust. That is being a successful human being. And we haven't brought that to the fore of how we define our species. Right. Now, I think that's really clear, as, as most will said, I've heard that saying, because you cannot run your mind. And these intellectual pursuits don't really stop these big reactions. So I know this is an hours-long conversation, but just what's the starting point if you're in this dysregulated state, made worse by a pandemic? Of course, you're seeing lots mm -hmm. of domestic abuse going up, mm -hmm. people's anxieties going over the top, et cetera. What are some of the things that I realize you can't just do it quickly? It's not as easy as flipping a switch, but what can we do now to help there, deal with there. this? There, there are two different, let's say, parallel pathways. One is a pathway of understanding, which is a top-down. Right. So we start learning about our body and the heroic nature of our body in making sure that we are, quote, safe, even though we're not safe with others, we have protected. So we start getting a heroic sense or valiant sense of our own behavior. So the narrative becomes more positive. The whole thing is we want this positive narrative of our survival. If we take blame and shame, we'll never get there. So that's on one level. Right. The other level is we have to understand what types of resources can we do we have in ourselves. And those resources are not going really deep and then coming out and I'm all I'm fine. The resources are relatively, let's say, uh, primitive neurobiological. Let's say we can breathe differently. We can have different visceral feelings when we breathe and we can kind of explore those feelings and understand that if I take that slow exhalation, the vagal activity gets greater and I'm, my body's calming down and now I'm feeling my body. And now as I feel my body, there's this other psychological thing that's occurring. And now I can get out of that feeling by shifting how I'm breathing by taking longer inhalations and shorter exhalations. And now I can go back and forth and explore it functionally on my own. I can do my own homework of getting inside my body on a journey of embodiment. So okay. the, the, the issue, what we're really saying is not only people isolated from each other, they're disembodied or dissociated from their own body. So they need to be uh, acknowledge, respect and honor their own bodily feelings and those will enable them to be more accessible to others. So you're training your body so you can feel safe with yourself. Is that a fair statement? Let's say that we're doing exercises in which we have moments in which we feel safe with ourselves. So okay. the training or the learning, again, if we fail at that, we're going to evaluate it. So right. training is always evaluated. Let's just say I'm exploring those feelings and let's see where I go with those feelings. Okay. Got it. And quick final thing here. There's an exercise. I think we've asked this before. Do you know Dr. Pennebaker who did the expressive yeah, writing? Sure. He's, yeah, sure. He's a friend of yours, right? Yeah, yes. So I've met him a couple times. He's been on this podcast. And there's quite a bit of really impressive research on a simple thing called expressive writing. Is there any connection between his work on, ex on expressive writing and, and Dr. Smythe um, on the autonomic nervous system? Has anybody looked at that connection? No. No, although he did, I think earlier in his career, I think he did some psychophysiology. Okay. But I find the work really remarkable. And I think 
I always gravitate. So let, let me put this way. I've been in the field for so many decades and you start using terms that you promised that you would never use. Okay. okay. Uh, uh, like concept of self or meaning. These are okay. words I would never touch. I think we're in, we're also on a pursuit for meaning, meaning putting words or creating a narrative in which we are comfortable with who we are. And I think the writing of these, of these uh, basically narratives, this is, is an example of the empowerment of top-down structures in the regulation of our visceral feelings. Okay. Well, I learned a lot today. <laughs> I appreciate that. I am assuming my audience uh, felt the same way. It's really remarkable insights here. And you, you know, it's not only does the neuroscience and physiology perspective that you bring, but the long, long history of being a psychologist looking at this from a psychophysiological perspective is really a remarkable perspective. And I'm just guessing we might have a few more conversations on this topic going forward. This is really wonderful today to, uh, to learn some of these ideas. So I thank you very, very much for uh, spending some time with us. You're, you're quite welcome, David. And thank you for instance, inviting me on your journey. And I'm learning a lot as well. So thank well, you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Porges, for being on the show today and explaining the important implications that the polyvagal theory has for the treatment of chronic pain and trauma, as well as the regulation of our social interactions. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and I want to remind you to come back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.